This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. And we're going to talk about Dying Inside by Robert Silverberg. This is actually first published as a serial. I don't know if you knew that. I did not. In Galaxy Magazine, over two issues, um, 1972, July, and September. And that means that this book is exactly as old as I am. It's, it, it is just a little, yeah, a little younger than I, I am, so. I'm dying inside, Paul. Well, and yeah, it's like we're, bo- we're both of the same age same rough age as Selig is in this in in the main thrust he's of the 41. novel. He's forty one at the beginning, um, and I I get the sense that it takes place over like uh, two months maybe. Yeah, a few months. Yeah, a few months as we go from fall towards winter. Yeah, and he loses his um, his powers finally over the course of the m- couple of couple of months and a couple of incidents, and then we get lots of flashbacks. Um, this is a forty six year old book. So, is it inc- incredibly problematic? Is my question for you. <laughs> I was thinking about I was thinking about all the things in here that could be taken out of context, out of the out of the novel, and attributed to Robert Silverberg, and then people could get really grumpy about. What do you think? Uh, well, I, I understand from what I was reading at the time that a number of people thought that this book was awfully autobiographical in some respects. Yeah. So that kind of changes that equation so much. So if he's mining his own perception of himself and his career at that time, then if he's then if he's writing himself into his book, then he then that is sort of authorial insertion into the narrative, which puts puts I mean you have to be careful of the uh, attributing what characters think and do to an author. But if you're putting yourself into your own work, then that equation kind of kind of means like uh, this is what he really, really is and so that does make that rather um unnerving to think about <laughs> you didn't use the word i i i quoted problematic right that's problematic. I see people using that word a lot um basically it means i got some problems with this um but uh i, I was thinking about like if it was problematic um then basically you can't you you won't like anything because what I really like about this book, other than it's very well written, which you know Silverberg is good at writing, um, is that uh, he's I don't want him to censor himself, right? The this is from this is all internal thoughts, right? There's no outside point of view. It's even when he's talking about himself in the third person, it's all himself talking about himself and thinking about how other people perceive him. It's a very thoughtful, interesting book, as well as very interior book. Yeah, yeah, super interior, right? And so all the uh, like, there's um, racial slurs and I don't know sexism and all sorts of stuff that could be attributed to his his character, and because it's obviously fairly autobiographical, um, could therefore be applied to him. But uh, if you want to say he shouldn't have written those things, then the problem would be you're saying people should censor themselves. And it's like, 
I, I would say the fakest parts are, you know, sort of the plot points um, here and there. And the realest parts are him get going around in elevators and having memories and thinking about how other people perceive him at parties and, and that sort of stuff. So, 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 so one way to pack that a little bit. So how do you find the plot fake, more fake than the interior th- thinking and. Well, I was just thinking, I was thinking about like the, uh, Lumumba incident. Yeah. Where which, which, if we were talking about problematic, that's kind of like case number one. Yeah. I would say that, you know, uh, getting beaten up, that's totally possible. Um, I, I think that that incident totally could have happened. I don't know that Robert Silverberg was ghosting uh, student uh, essays. <laughs> um, I guess we could ask him. <laughs> he, well, he, he, I, mean, I mean, from what I understand, especially in the 60s, he wrote just about everything in, in a very Dixian sort of way. He just kind of wrote everything he could in every yes. possible genre to keep, keep going. If he, if he ghost roasted ghost written term essays i would not have been surprised right right it's um and i as i pointed out to you i guess on twitter or maybe it was on skype um there are websites that are just advertise these services boldly now yeah it's no longer like oh yeah the the guy the guy in the corner of the campus that you know to go to yeah you can just get these things but but i I mean detection has also done gotten better as well as people have been able to find the find uh teachers being able to find these uh these flat things and be able to try to work it, it's kind sure, of there, it's are, a, there are websites know. that uh, uh there I, i've seen students be required to submit things to a website like called submit or something check in or something like that and what it does is it it does the work of a teacher um who should be doing their job basically checking to see if this is written by you know wikipedia <laughs> um it just compares the text against uh, all the other texts in its database and and uh sees if it's been written before which is kind of what david selig does right he he resubmits the same papers over and over again with slight ch- changes and uh addition in in yeah but i i, I find it interesting I find it interesting the way that he's able to go on for so long is that since he's reading the minds of his of his of his uh, clients, he's able to tune the voice of the papers enough that it's it takes the Columbia University a while to catch on that he's doing it. And I mean, we we find out that even before the Lumumba incident that. They're on to somebody's doing this, but they haven't been able to figure out who that is. It's only the fact that he gets beat up that they're able to put two and three together and find out that it's actually him. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so so it's, it's interesting. It's a little bit of a cat and mouse game in the midst of this novel that we don't know actually is happening because we just think, oh yeah, he's just doing these term papers, la la di da. Until we reveal, until the uh, dean reveals that no, we've, we've been on to you all. We on to this idea all along. We just couldn't narrow it down to you till. You basically, it's basically his waning powers get him into trouble because I think the reading I had on this time, so I've read this a long time before, and I, I, when I was young, young and strong and not quite as visible of the uh, some of the issues of this novel, the feeling I got this time is that 
the reason why he fails so badly at Obama's paper is because he can't read them that well, and so that's why he botches. Basically, his failing powers drive that part that drive that incident. That he since he isn't able to get a good hold on his client, that's why he writes so badly. Therefore, he gets beat up. Therefore, the dean exposes him. Oh uh, well, I, that's not how I would perceive what happened there. I mean, first, first of all, the Lumumba character, whether he is real or not, uh, as a as in a real person, caused this incident. I don't think this actually happened. That's uh, that was the part that felt the most felt the most clumsy to me um, of the writing. But um, we wouldn't be able to see inside his head, right? Uh, motivation is uh, people. This is really something important for humans is is to detect lies and become telepaths in, in a certain sense as, you know, like this guy's trying to scam me or this guy's not trustworthy, getting vibes, you know, all these sorts of mm-hmm. feel. That's what the whole book is really it's a metaphor for if it if it's not science fiction. Um, and uh, it's <laughs> I mean, he he treats it um, like science fiction. But the problem is, is the main character isn't really interested in the science. He's just sort of living with it, and he's curious, but he's not—he's not curious enough to, you know, submit himself to rigorous laboratory experiments, right? Um, the the experiments that happen are casual or romantic or um, or natural experiments in, in the or, or or accidents, you know, like yeah, like, like yeah, yeah, the, the drug, the which I think the drug scene, it, it's. I think it's uh, all of those parts are actually quite interesting, and it is science fiction. But if if it's a metaphor, then it's a metaphor for the problems of we're all trapped in our own heads, and we want to uh, understand what's going on in other people's heads, um, and we look to their words, and we also look to their facial expressions and tone of voice, and and uh, you know comparing their actions with their with their um, <laughs> with their words and all that sort of stuff, right? But uh, the Lumumba complaining about the essay, mm-hmm. that if that was one of my students, uh, I wouldn't have taken him as a student. Anybody who's super resentful, um, you can kind of tell, uh, you, you know, when somebody's full of resentment. And I, I, I've been in situations not exactly like that, but similar. Um, and I've refused work over... You know, even though, because it's just I, I could tell like this is not going to work out well. Well, 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 we we got to, we got two reasons why he doesn't do this that that are valid and drive. But one, a he's broke all the time and he needs the money, so he's got to do it. And two, he's so dependent on his powers, so dependent on being able to read people's minds that when that when a gift starts to fail him, he doesn't really know how to interact with anybody and so that that causes him real problems in trying to deal with his client because he's not used to having to read and this gets developed further later on when his powers go away completely and he has to like completely adrift this we see here at the beginning like he's not quite sure how to deal with somebody when he just can't just open up their brains i mean look i mean that's the whole the whole kitty storyline like the, the whole attraction and interest in kitty is the fact that she can't read his mind at all. He, she, he can't read his mind at all, but it's only, she can only pretend against him, which, 
which felt really we- really weird in some ways. I mean, we didn't I'm find sure that out the- at first, though, right? In the book. No, we, we, we know, know that, that, that that's a late reveal. Yes, and and that's actually fun stuff. There's, uh, I was thinking of all the things that this is comparable to later. Um, you know, uh, Ted Chiang's Understand is a good example where there's someone out mm-hmm. there uh, in the universe yeah. that that has the same superpower as him. Oh, and uh, and then there's the people who you know are invisible to the superpower, right? Yeah, um, I, yeah. I, I mean, we for for listeners that haven't listened to our Ted Chiang, Chiang uh, podcast, you should listen to that. This 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 makes ironically a very good companion piece to that because we do get two people who use this power very differently and then we have the third kitty who is really just a nullifier but just against him and i and this time i i I picked up on that that feels like a cheat why is she only defense against him she's not defense against uh the no i don't think that's a cheat at all i think i mean that's the attraction to uh, his attraction to her right but but how do you uh I mean, given the rule, the science fiction rules we have here, how do you justify she can defend against one but not the other? Here's uh, here's what I would say is you're you're saying defend. That's not what's happening at all. So, what I like about this is it is a science fiction novel, but the narrator is so uninterested in this, the rules of the science behind it. Although the but author, I am. the author, the author is interested and he's made some rules, but he hasn't revealed them to the narrator. Yeah, but and so yeah, there's no defense. It's just she, she, she's like, he's AM and she's FM, right? Something like that. And the the, the other guy has both AM and FM. Okay, I could, I could, okay, I could, I could buy that as an explanation. I mean, it would be, again, we we Selig is just not interested in that, which is more's the pity, and I. It, I mean, he he is rather undistinguished, shall we say, mm-hmm. in everything. So we don't actually get that exploration and explanation. You basically got to come up with something like that as a paradigm to figure out as to what is happening. I I, I went with the defense, but you're going with the, just the broadcast, which I, well, think it, I like. I, she doesn't she doesn't put up a defense, right? So it, it would be a natural shield if she had one. She doesn't know yeah. that he's telepathic. We never find that out, right? And what when we see her through the eyes of the friend uh, inside yeah. her head, right? That he he gets paranoid about it, but I don't think that that's legit. I don't think the friend, since that never pays off, I don't think the friend is is trying to fuck with anything. No, no, I I I, I take that as given. I mean, given what we had seen up to that point of his interaction with Kitty and his obsession with trying to un, quote unquote unlock her telepathic mind, I could I could buy that. That's how she feels about him at this point when his when his friend starts uh, scanning her and relaying that to uh, Selig. That yeah, yeah, she's 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 sick and tired of this creep of this creep soy being creepy. So <laughs> like, yeah, that, that does, that doesn't feel wrong. Oh, at all. He's yeah. also annoying, right? That's uh, like, he's, he's trying to create a relationship, uh, that's telepathic, right. With her, a relationship he ha- he can have with everybody except for her. And it's like, um, it's almost like bringing your professional work home, and you practicing your psychologist, your psychiatrist, and you 
practice your psychiatry on your wife. Right. That that's how I got that. You know, like he doesn't see what he how he's doing is like inappropriate and she sees it. And that's what sort of puts up the uh, breaks on their relationship. Um, have you ever read up uh, this just as a side note, because we're talking about telepaths and people who can and can't remind. Have you ever read uh, Shirley Harris's network? Mm-mm. Um, Shirley Harris has a oh Charlene uh, Harris yes yes Charlene Harris yes oh yeah yes, so I was uh, thinking I was, I was thinking, thinking about Dead Until Dark uh, yeah I thought about that too it's like oh she can't read Bill that's that's right like that was the here. same relationship except in reverse and the difference is uh, you know there's a whole lot of other things going on in that world it, that's what makes that a fantasy book right is right. that they just keep adding to the explanations but the the initial interest point that she she finds this uh, guy who she can't read as, you know, that's a fascinating, you know, attraction there, right? And yeah. I thought that, that that was an interesting, I don't know, I, I, what do you think? Do you think she had necessarily have read this? I don't think she would have to have. I don't think she necessarily would have had to, but would it surprise me? Not really. I mean... How old? How old? How old is Charlene Harris at this point? I mean, she's she's similar uh, to our age. Yeah, she's she, yeah. So she she's born in oh no, she's older. She's born in fifty one. Yeah, so but she's not so, she's so, not a she, contemporary she, of Silverberg's, right? No, but she would have been twenty or so when this book came out. So, you know, could be. So you know, I mean, avid reader and avid reader in the sixties. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. 70s, 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 70s. So yeah, so yeah, so I, I, it's entirely plausible she'd have read this, put that away, and when she came up with the initial hook into a much deeper world, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, it, it could be a coincidence, but it would not surprise me if she had read Dying Sign. I mean, this book was relatively acclaimed at the time. Mm-hmm. It got a serialization so, in Galaxy and got nominated for some awards. Right? People think it's one of Silverberg's best. Um, I, I wanted to go back before we we go back into the story. I wanted to talk about it as a metaphor a little uh-huh. bit more. So that website I was alluding to is called superbpaper.com. I I I just picked the first one on the list, but basically it 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 offers the services that David Selig does. Right? It says need help with your assignment, get an expert academic writing assistance. But this is the sentence that really tells you the truth, right? We can write any paper on any subject with within the t- tightest deadline. And then it's got prices per page, uh, starting from high school going up to PhD. And the prices... PhD! Change. Yep. Uh, starting at $10 a page for high school, $14 a page for college, 16 for university, 22 for master's, PhD $29 a page. And then there's all sorts of... Um, uh, people, testimonials, not using anybody's last name, <laughs> um, because this is a real, um, I've had students who want me to do this for them, and um, I don't like to do it. I want them to, I, first of all, like I, I, I want to get paid way more, because I want to, I, I enjoy the teaching and making people have skills, um, and, you know, I get them to do my homework, not the other way around. You know what I mean? Yeah, teach teach the fish rather than handing them the fish. Yeah, but more like like I I, I do 
uh, a podcast twice a week, and I got a lot of homework that I need to do, so I, I make them read the stories that I'm do reading. <laughs> They're helping I've me with my that. homework, not the other way around. So I don't want to, uh, but I've had students who, you know, that's what they want, is they want somebody to do the work for them. And I can't, I can't do that because it's just, it's not, it doesn't, I'm not doing this for money, right? Um, I, I need money, but I'm not doing it for money, so I don't do it. But um, I do have the tele- telepathy, I, and I think I've talked about this um, before, maybe with you even, Paul, um, on the podcast. Basically, you, you asked me to 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 uh, poke you about this, so please explicate. Yeah. So um, within, you know, I, I get a new student, somebody refers somebody, just just pretty much like how it is in the novel, except. Um, the difference is, is, you know, we don't meet on campus. Um, and I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a, I don't see myself as a scrubby, uh, um, sure. My, I might be losing my hair, but <laughs> I'm dignified, right? Like the guy in this book is kind of like, he's barely alive. He's barely in the economy. Right. Um, so I, I feel sad for him basically through the whole book. And he feels sad for himself. That's not how I see myself. But other than that, we're pretty much the same. So what, I, I sit down with somebody, and after about 10 minutes, I can know with very high accuracy what vocabulary they can draw upon. Right? So I, we'll read a, a page, right? And mm-hmm. I go through the page with them. And if if uh, we do like a whole column uh, from a story, I can say you have uh, highlighted uh, 16 words in your column, right? And then they'll, they'll count them up and they say, no, I only have 15. And I said, did you get, uh, let's go through the list, right? And then we compare lists. And sometimes they they don't have 16, but that's because they missed one. And I say, if you if you're claiming to know what this word is, then you can use it in a sentence, <laughs> right? Ah. And so th- this is part of what, what what's going like. Have you you in it happens in this book, and I'm sure you've heard it before. People thinking sentences in their head. You've heard this phrase, mm-hmm. like he he thinks in French or something like that. You've heard people say that. I think it's even in this book. Right, he 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 thinks in Italian or whatever. He, he's thinking right, in Chinese. Right, right, right. Because we we we've we've touched on this with some with some other stories about the the whole uh, Sapir Whorf and hypothesis about language and think thoughts are thoughts are thoughts because they are ex, they are constructed in various languages and all the implications from that. Yeah, I'm not sure that's true. That that's well, the thing. The, yeah, uh, yeah. As I, I think I, writing is is thinking. And I think, you know, practicing what you're going to say right before you say it could be, you know, uh, speaking. Um, but I don't think, you know, people say, you know, I need to get some milk later. <laughs> they just think, oh, shit, milk. Right. It's, it's not so much sentences as um, flashes. Right. So when, when, you're, when you have a document that you're shared together in front of you um, and you're looking at it together or. So, or even like if you were watching a movie, mm-hmm. um, and you're watching a movie with somebody who's younger than you, you 
mightn't explain some of the things that they don't understand, like who Nixon was or something like that. Um, like if somebody's reading this book and doesn't know who Nixon is, he, Nixon shows up, right? Um, in a parade, doesn't he? Yeah, well, a few presidents show up. Yeah. Or a, no, a motorcade, not a parade. Motorcade. Yeah. Anyways. They mentioned JFK and whatnot. Yeah, so uh, uh, if, if this book is a metaphor, um, that's what uh, I think the kind of telepathy that Robert Silverberg has is. And there are, there are uh, arguments that I use with my students that basically say what, what uh, writing is, is you trying to be telepathic with a later audience, right, where you're not there. And really good writers like Robert, Robert uh, Silverberg and Isaac Asimov and Lawrence Block and a whole bunch of other writers. It's not that their um, their uh, ideas are always the thing that is important. It's that they communicate their ideas super clearly. When I read... Uh, uh, or when I read, I haven't read recently, uh, Greg Bear. I was uh-huh. always blown away by his uh, his really fascinating ideas. And then there would be sentences that I just don't understand what the fuck he's talking about. Because to him, it makes sense, right? And this is like when you're a kid and you're trying to communicate a whole bunch of ideas to others at the same, you know, your peers or adults. You don't have great sentences. They don't, they don't communicate your thoughts, but a really good writer can make clear what's going on. And that is kind of a telepathy. So if it's a metaphor, that's what it's a metaphor for. Um, um, a metaphor a metaphor for good and clear writing. Right. And, and if that's the case, then this is kind of like a writer's inability to write, a decline in his or her... Um, Right. Output and ability, yeah. So, so hence we're going back to the autobiographical right. elements again, because at this point in his career, I mean, Silver, so, I mean, after this, it takes a while for Silverberg to actually come up with something. Let me look at his bibliography for mm-hmm. a second. I mean, after this, because his dying side, yeah. I mean, there's a. I mean, things get really thin for a long while mm-hmm. for Silverberg until the eighties, I think. The eight until until the in, until the eighties, yeah. So this is. Uh, um, so if there was a sequel, there's life inside. <laughs> right? Life is coming back, right? The life may return, something like that. Because he, yeah. he had a massive output uh, from the fifties to the sixties, right? Just incredibly massive um and then we sort of have a a, a, a you know some collections um between uh, this book and now but like yeah so i'm seeing collections between 1971 and 1979 but the uh yeah yeah, after this, the next novel really of any length is uh, Mashapur. Okay. And that's that's like eight years later. So, yeah. And, and, and Lord Valentine's Castle being very different than 
a lot of stuff we there's did. Some, there's some other stuff here. I'm seeing there's Stochastic Man, 75, Shadrach in the Furnish, 76, and then uh, and then there's a gap till 1985, till the next novel. So, well, no, because you got to look at because you look at same page. I got to look at Magipore. Magipore is broken up differently. Lord Valentine's Castle is 1980. Okay. Well, I'm looking at the um, uh, the novel section, but certainly I was against I was against bibliography on Wikipedia. Yeah, it goes. Yeah, Book of Skulls series, though, right? Yeah, it goes Book of Skulls, Dying Inside, and then yeah, Stochastic Man, Sadrak in the Furnace, and then Magipore. So yeah, so. His output definitely went down. His his output definitely went. I mean, if you look at down. his short fiction, which is where we're really talking output. Um, 1952, one story. 1954, two stories. Um, oh, sorry, three stories. Then 55, two story. Now look at this. 56. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Uh, 1920, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, and it goes on and on. Wait, it's like, it's like 50 stories in 1956. And then 1957, it's the same, if not more. 58, the same, if not more. 59, right? And then, of course, the magazine industry is dying at this point and so he starts uh slowing down his number of placements but then he starts getting into novels but he was trained by the same uh writing um group as block and ellison and um westlake uh you know where they could basically as much as they could write they could sell to uh, sleaze mags, uh, it's not sleaze mags, sleaze um, novels, sl- uh, where basically they're they're writing porn- pornography in novel form. So they they could write and write and write and write and write, and if you if you do that massive output, maybe you just get burned out, and maybe that's what it's a metaphor for. Yeah, the lost the lost couple, the use up of his gift because we get that wonderful sequence. Uh, flashback when he's when he's a teenager and he just goes hopping from mind to mind. Mm. Like that, that's that's and what the, and the yeah, girl getting plowed and uh, the farmer. And the, and, yeah, the chicken and the, the the whole sequence. That's one of the best sequences in mm. the whole book. It's a good one. Like this is like okay, this is this is this is the full fulmination of his power and ability and what he really could do if he really really wanted to push for it and. It's kind of a kind of sad that in the end he he uses it for such um, small gains. And yeah, no, that's I think that's the whole like th- that's why it's a tragic story, right? Is that he's this wonderkind, and that's even the word is even used in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got a, a massive, amazing superpower, and he's a, basically a p- pathetic schlub, right? That. He he's relied on his superpower to allow him to uh, cheat his way through life, and and not in a sort of a um, 
directed way, just sort of like exist. And there is an, another sequence in here, it's briefly mentioned um, in his history, right, where he's a stockbroker. Yeah. That's actually um, another connection to a novel that I talked about recently uh, for the um, Ted Chang Understand Show was uh, there's this novel by Alan Glynn called The Dark Fields, which got mm-hmm. turned into the movie, the uh, movie called Limitless. Um, right, yes. Where he uses his knowledge of the stock market, well, of basically the ability to see um, patterns. patterns to make money, right? Now, he, the way they do it in this book is by operate, operating on inside information, right? Insider trading. <laughs> Sorry, <sure. laughs> Literally, the, the, inside the, people's heads. The, the, there is a gap, and I do wonder... Because, because I mean, he's he's doing he's doing these stock trades. That's where he meets Kitty, and it's an okay it's an okay life. I mean, it's not it's I mean, it's a small little firm. It's not doing much. I mean, he's not he's not on Wall Street like uh like his telepath uh, counterpart who definitely is making decent money. Yeah, working Wall Street, but we don't ever get to. S- connect the dots to see how he's fallen so far is that he's hustling term papers at Columbia. Well, I think, I think, I think we're supposed to think that his, his decline is based on the fact that he, when he was a kid, right. He says to the psychiatrist, Dr. Hitner, not Hitler, Hitner. Yes. Hitner. um, uh, He says to the psychiatrist, uh, maybe this is only in the radio drama adaptation. Um, I, when you, what do you want to do when you grow up, David? And and he says, I want to just read comic books and enjoy myself. <laughs> and he says, Well, that's not going to make a living for you, David. And I, says, I don't care, because <laughs> he doesn't have to, right? When he gets into a fight, he knows where the guy's going to hit, so he can just not be there, right? He can see that the hit's coming, and of course that doesn't work for him when Lumumba and his uh, basketball team uh, turn him into a basketball. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's sequence in the novel, yeah, where he gets into the fight in the end, and and the other kid just can't lay lay a blow on him because he everything is absolutely telegraphed, so pun intended. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when it comes to Lumumba, yeah, he's just he's just a a rag doll to be uh, tossed about because he's lost that bil- that ability. So yeah, I guess he I guess he never had the strong ambition to do major major things with his talent but i mean he, he, he just I'm, have sex with girls is his major ambition right but not even a regular i mean he can't even hold down a regular job mm-hmm. i mean just i mean i mean uh, the, I, I i was thinking about my own life and it's at least i mean i mean i don't have the most glamorous job ever mentioned the planet it's actually probably one of the most boring jobs ever invented in the planet but it's a it's a stable, solid job. It's not. I'm not hustling term papers at, at the U of M. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, that's what. That is why I have to make such pains to uh, to distinguish myself from David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because uh, it's it, it's it's a very strange job I have now. Like I I used to advertise, you know, um, mm-hmm. and I don't. I, I just don't. I just wait for. I don't know. I'm just doing my stuff, and then I get a text message. Right. It's like, OK, a new student. And that is it, it's not what I pl- I never planned uh, that as a career. 
right? It just sort of happened. And I, so I, I, I want to make this a distinction between me and David. I, I hope my powers don't wane. <laughs> because if they do, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't want to rely on my sister. Um, I thought the relationship. You have a sister, Jesse? This, I do, yes. Oh, oh, a younger sister? Yes. Oh, dear. Yes. And I, uh, I, she's volatile, uh, a little bit the way the sister is in here, although I would say mine is more volatile. Um, and she has a kid, too, just like. So there are a lot of parallels here. Wow. <laughs> a lot of parallels. Um, I'm older than the uh, David character is, uh, but not a lot older. He's only 41, so. Um, yeah, I just think I th- I think that it's a it's an interesting book because he's kind of saying something about um, Superman aren't going to be what you think they are. This is if if this is a book in dialogue with other science fiction, which it explicitly is in at least one point in the novel. Um, this is uh, Slans uh, Slans um, <laughs> ain't what you think they are, right? Yeah, Slans aren't slang- Superman. They're just schlubs. Right? Slans are schlubs. That's Slans that, are that's schlubs. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, but so I, I want to jump into. I want to jump from that. You mentioned that into what one of the one of the interesting things about this novel that might turn a lot of people off is that this novel is just Silverberg decided to put in every literary illusion mm. and author he could possibly think of into this novel. It's just what well, makes let, sense let, for the character, right? Who's a who's a, who's a re, a, a strong reader. He he lives near a university. He's well educated. He he's turned off of Kitty because Kitty is uninterested in those sorts of things. So it makes sense that the, the character would think about about poets, painters, writers, composers, the whole long list. Playwrights, th- novelists, philosophers, scientists, right? I I I mean. I mean, some of the references and people I knew, other people, like who? Mm. I, I I keep myself relatively well well versed in these sorts of things, but but I mean, I mean, for some, some things, some some people are just really names. I mean, I could pick out a Beethoven composition, but I but if you uh, ask me uh, about about uh, Alan Berg, I was like, uh, I don't know what he sounds like. Mm. It's just like the, the novel is just replete with him thinking about these books and thinking about these authors and how they relate to relate to uh, what he thinks about life. So it's a very philosophical novel in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are a number of uh, Odd John is one of the ones that's called out. Um, yeah, as a Staple. specific novel, there are lots of author names as well. Um, there's uh, one that was pretty rare, which I haven't read yet, and I probably should because it seems to be the sort of thing that I'll read. <laughs> what is that? What uh, the that? Hamp- Hamptonshire Wonder. Have you heard of this book? No, tell me more. Uh, it's uh, by J.D. Beresford, who's uh, 19th century, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century science fiction writer from the U.K., uh, Wikipedia entry says, The Hamptonshire Wonder is a 1911 science fiction novel by G.D. Beresford. It is one of the first novels to involve a wunderkind. A child in it, uh, Victor Stott, is the son of a famous cricket player. The origin is perhaps a reference to H.G. Wells' father, Joseph Wells. 
The novel concerns his progress from infant to almost preternaturally brilliant child. Victor Stott is subtly deformed to allow his for his powerful brain. One prominent and unpleasant character is a local minister. As J.D. Beresford's father was a minister, and Beresford himself was partially disabled, some autobiographical aspects of the story... Unfinished sentence. This Wikipedia entry needs to be fixed up. Anyways, oh boy. it's really badly written. Not telepathic at all. Um, the thing is, is this, this is a, an old book, so it's it's not getting a lot of love because it's not by H.G. Wells. But I've heard it come up a number of times. Um, and I believe there's a collection that I, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it that's mentioned in that same sequence when he's, I guess, looking at the bookshelf or something of his science fiction collection. Um, he mentions Clark and maybe Asimov and a few others. But there's a collection in there that might be just called Wonderkins. Um, and it's a collection of short stories that deal with uh, sort of people like David Selig right, in science fiction. So even though, and I think... It says on the Wikipedia entry for Dying Inside that uh, Silverberg says that this is his sort of most mainstream book. Um, it's definitely, definitely in dialogue with previous science fiction stories and novels. But the difference is, is that the, this character doesn't live in a science fiction universe, right? He lives in our universe. And it could have been that, he, you know, instead of having him be a, um, a ghost writer for student essays, he could be a, um, a science fiction writer. The problem with that is it, it would be a little bit too recursive, right? Oh, yeah. That, that, I, I mean, not that it hasn't stopped um, people. It's unusual, from... unless it's a comedy like. Yeah, it was uh, Larry Niven. And I was thinking Inferno too. Yes, exactly. like yeah, that's exactly where I was going. And that's a New York guy too, I think as well. Um, and it it happens at a party, right? So there's a number of 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 ways that this could have gone. But he, I know um, you didn't. I don't think you got a chance to hear the um, radio drama, the 2001 no. BBC adaptation. That's sadly I didn't. So tell me more. Yeah, it's uh, it's. Let's see, it's a 40, 43 minutes long. So obviously not... <laughs> yeah, very, rather condensed. You're rather I mean, condensed. It's still a long novel, but yeah, it's still it's really Yeah, it's seven, seven and a bit hours. So this is a very tightly packed um, visit to that world. Um, it's set in the UK for some reason. I guess they have a UK actors, is why. Um, I, I mean, maybe just, just like we've had all these 12K Dick... Uh, Electric Dreams be set in the UK, oddly. But yeah. So it's a matter of who's adapting the material. Yeah, I think that that's a, a large part of it. And then the other thing that was a major change is he doesn't write uh, student essays. Instead, he works at a bookshop. And so there's some incidents that are not in the novel that are sort of translated into the adaptation. And working at the bookshop would kind of make more sense for the literary stuff, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, um, I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I seem to recall it being true. So we'll we'll see what happens if people complain. But basically, um, I remember 
Harlan Ellison and Silverberg and them were having contests kind of to see how much um, material they could add to their text to fill pages. <laughs> and one of the ways he does that in this book is he just puts the essays in, right? So we get the compare the Aeschylus um, essay, we get the Kafka essay, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, we get I think we get the Kafka essay in full. So it compares the castle and uh, uh, the trial. Yes, and it's a good I, I've essay. Read the, I, I've read the trial. I've never actually read the castle, so I found I found. I, yes, it is padding, but I also found that interesting. It's like, oh, yes. I never that's, the, that's the funny never... part, right? Is it you can sort of tell he's padding it out, but on the other hand, it's really fun reading. And then in context, it fits, right? Mm-hmm. So he's he's managed to um, do <laughs> what he wanted to do, which is, you know, re- recycle some material, but also, I, I mean, I don't know for a fact that he he wrote that essay and then. He's recycling it. Um, he might have put. It would be hilarious if he did. Uh, but I bet that he did. The, the, right? I would be put. I, I, it's not a big money bet, but I would bet a little bit of money on that because um, it it would be so fun to do that, right? Um, <laughs> so that he, he, even though this is kind of a sad book and a depre- depressing book in a certain sense. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's it's definitely it's definitely not the feel good book of the season. That's for sure. Maybe I should not have listened to this in December. I didn't find it depressing. I just found it. I found it to be tonally uh, depressing, right? I didn't find. I I was actually quite enjoying listening to it, but I didn't. I wasn't delighted. I, I felt. I felt really. I mean, may, maybe because I kept comparing myself to the selling in some ways and thinking about his life and his sure. lot. And Which is great because that's sort of the telepathy that I'm talking about, right? A and, really and, good novel puts you in the head of the character. And and and, and did this novel does the same thing as in some ways as as um, Book of Skulls does in mm. in holding back information till late in the book for the yeah. reader. You have he's to, a very good writer. He's he's a very good writer. He loves that he loves that technique, like holding out what exactly. Because because we get mentions a kitty early on, and he says, "Well, I'll tell you about it later." So it's like hanging out there as a as a promise to the reader. Yes, I'm going to get to tell you about this bad part of my life, but not just yet. Which also goes back to the question of when is this? When is he actually composing this narrative in his head? That would, yeah. but that that's a side issue entirely. But but anyway, so as as he as he's going through. As he's going through, and he's he's going back, he's looping back to these previous things while driving through the narrative. It's it's very nicely constructed. It, mm-hmm. You you want you want to know how he got to the point where he is, which kind of kind of frustrates me a little bit. That jump the jump between stockbroker and and uh, term paper ghostwriter is not really explained that well. I no. mean, I can, well, but it's not I explained liked at all. Right, it's just it's it's a it's a blank in his history, and it makes me think that you know he's hiding stuff from. I mean, he sort of distances himself from himself too, right? So he's there's things he doesn't want to deal with, right? Right. I, I mean, maybe maybe I mean one possible theory is that since Kitty was a client at that at firm, so after Kitty leaves him for his 
his friend basically decides, yeah, to give up stockbroking as a uh, yeah, forget this and I'll just go do something else. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but I mean, I mean, bumming off his sister and writing and cheating with writing term papers. That's, I mean, I, I mean, I felt or, I mean, I, I, I'm there. There have been points in my life where I've not been in the greatest of financial straits. So that those that that aspect of the novel really hit home. Like, okay, I really feel you here, Sally. Because yeah, things are a little tight this month. Well, they're not. I think they're tight because he's 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 in a bad way rather than um he, like. He, I think that's the whole point of this book is like it's almost like because he's he's given something early on in his life that uh, is a crutch, right? That he can rely on. Um, he relies on it instead of doing what he and, needs and, to do. Yeah, and, I, I, yeah. He, 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 I mean, he, I mean, he relies on that so much that he actually doesn't build up any real skills to do anything. Which, yeah, that that's not going to get you. Anywhere in lo- in life, I mean, he yeah, he's too he make- in the moment, uh, manipulating the moment rather than future future planning. So uh, I mentioned in the audio audio drama, they make it a a, a bookstore works in a bookstore, mm-hmm. and I thought that that was an interesting way to go. It might even be the only way to go if you're going to keep it short, because the whole writing essays thing doesn't make a lot of sense if you've only got 40 minutes to tell a story, because you can't pad it out, right? So there's a couple of incidents where people come into the bookstore um, and they've got all this stuff rushing around in their head. But, uh, you know, she needs to buy a a present for her brother-in-law and she's complaining about how he's always going on and on about cars. Well, this makes it really easy for him to bring her to the car section of the bookstore and, you know, and she thinks he he's a really brilliant guy, right? Because he's just reading her mind. And then the next customer comes in, and he's all muddled, but he's definitely gay and wants to look at muscle men, right? Um, and so he takes him over to the muscle men section, and that's where he gets beaten up. And that's the Lumumba section of the book translated, right? So where instead of a basketball player beating him up because he wrote the wrong paper or whatever, he's beaten up because... Uh, he's got a repressed homosexual who uh, doesn't want to think about that, right? So he ends up in the hospital in the same way. And I, I like how when he ends up in the hospital, we don't see him go there, right? And uh, the um, the friend who runs the, the um, university where he used to attend and where he's mm-hmm. still, was it Columbia? Um, yeah. uh, he's the dean now. He he's uh, he says, well, you know, look how far you've fallen. We'll, we'll uh, give you some sort of uh, work, you know, on the uh, to just get you on your feet or something. And then he reads his mind, and yep. <laughs> it's like this guy's pathetic. <laughs> I was like, yeah. oh, right. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The, we get the sense the, that that happened in real life. That people sometimes think of us as idiots. Like, um, this, this probably happens a lot in uh, in your life too, where you, you know you're reading uh, something very science fictiony, and then somebody lo- looks at what you're reading, and then they think you're an idiot because you like 
rocket ships and robots, right? Uh, I, I, I do, I do get derision and askance looks from right. people about my about my reading habits at work. Right. Yes. So uh, the 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 smart thing to do is to realize that they're idiots. Right. It's because um, if you're reading something that's uh, really interesting and uh, valuable. The fact that other people think it's stupid is their problem, not yours, right? But when he's when he's being derided in this case, look how far you've fallen. This is pathetic. That actually hits home, right? Because that's really what the situation is. He's a 41-year-old man uh, soliciting term papers for pe- from people who he shouldn't be doing it for basically yeah he's doing he's doing bad work uh, for money it's it's prostitution in a certain sense um but then when he gets to vi- goes back and visits judith right mm-hmm. um in the novel he his uh, nephew is really nice to him right suddenly and he meets his uh, old girlfriend Kitty on the street, although maybe he doesn't. It's all in his head. Um, and she's like, "Oh, I can finally relate to you, right? You seem changed." Well, he is changed, right? Um, and then, what's interesting is wait a minute, it's not Kitty that he meets on the street. It's the what, other one. What was the other one? It's not Kitty. Uh, the the other girl, the other girlfriend he meets on the street. I don't know. There's so many girlfriends. Um, yeah, yeah, because because he never sees he never sees Kitty or well, or the, he actually doesn't that. see her, right? It's in his head. He's he's he acts like if I were to meet you on the street, and then he has this whole this whole dialogue that goes on, um, and then he says, "I didn't get your number, but you weren't there anyway." Well, it doesn't really matter. Whoever it is. Um, the, the point is, when he gets home, when he gets home, when he gets to Judith's house, and he, he actually stays the night, so I guess it is home, um, in the maid's room, right? Um, the little boy, who always felt contempt for him, like one of his many, many other uncles who aren't really uncles, right? Yes. Um, is nice to him. <laughs> and the way he's nice is he says, here's a picture of... He's just done a, like a cartoon drawing or you know, crayon drawing, right? And he says, here's a picture of a bomb blowing somebody up. <laughs> and and uh, Selig like, takes that as a very positive insight. And then I noted that in the audio drama, um, he, Selig says something in his own head that he doesn't say in this, uh, the novel version. And I thought, oh, maybe that's actually the truth, which is, um, Judith probably told him to say that, to be nice to your poor uncle who's been, right? And so mm-hmm. what happens is the niceties of the face and the smile is the new truth. Whereas before he could see beneath that truth to what was laying below, right? It's like, uh, you know, you go into your dentist's office and they smile at you. It's not because they're happy to see you necessarily. It's because they're told to smile, right? Right. I mean, they don't stand around waiting for you. They're doing their job. So 
if you can see below the surface, you can see the reality, and that is a kind of a grim reality, right? Everybody's sort of self-motivated and mean and you know selfish and you know thinking about themselves all the time. And then if you can take that away and go back to the well, not I guess not back for selling, but the way it is for almost everybody, right? When you meet somebody and they smile at you, they aren't just doing it because they're they've been trained properly. It's because they're delighted to meet you, right? It's like the way a politician is so uh, you know the really good politicians, not the ones who lose all the time, but the ones who win all the time. The way they win is they have the right personality to charm people. I feel your pain. I feel your pain, exactly. even though I'm fucking everybody. I feel <laughs> your pain, right? And people, and people, and yeah, and a good politician will make you feel like that, even if they that's are. That's right, and that, and so that's why David's sort of disdain for politicians is, is he can literally legitimately read their minds when they're driving by in the motorcade. Um, uh, this is a nice little comment. Uh, Silverwing's making, but I I think that this is a very nice sort of character piece study on on why you it might not be so great to be telepathic and and that final ending where you know he doesn't have to see into side his sister's head all the time anymore and doesn't can't use can't be it's almost like growing up and not being um, a liar you know yeah. Um, a, a, Although a couple, everybody's lying to you. <laughs> uh, well, that that's kind of like a couple a, a couple of small things I want to want want to uh, tease out and point point out. Um, mm-hmm. Have you um, have you ever read the Larry Niven story, The Return of William Proxmire? Uh, I I think we've talked about it before, and I can't remember it. So you it, it, re- it, it's 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 a it's it's the t- the Larry Niven time travel oh, yes. story. Where, yes, I do know yeah. this one. So uh, yeah. the uh, Heinlein. Well, yeah, when he goes back again, yeah, Heinlein gets cured in order to kill science fiction. But then, then, then when they go back to the present, they talk about, oh, science fiction came back in the 60s anyway. And they talk about all these novel, all these fake novels about stuff coming out. And, and there's, there's one, uh, one, uh, one bit where they say, and, and Selig's complaint, which was Silverberg's classic study of a telepath. And at the time we were ah, like, Oh, ah, they're talking ah, about ah, dying ah. inside. Oh, <laughs> so you wrote it in this world anyway, just renamed it. Yeah, no, I think, I think that, uh, that Silverberg could exist without Heinlein. Right. But they, yeah. I, they're I, not, they're not on parallel tracks. Right. So yeah, tracks, I, I, tracks, not tracks. Tracks, but yeah, especially after reading rereading the Soberg we done lately, I could totally see yes, Soberg would still exist even without Heinlein and just, I mean, yeah, you just have a title name change and you just go on. the the other The other weird thing I kept thinking about as listen, especially towards the end, when he loses his power, and because it's the because um, it's the season of Hanukkah, I was I was thinking of weirdly of uh, the story of Judith from the Bible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Judith behead, beheading Holofernes. And uh, have you been seeing my uh, seeing my tweets about <laughs> about that? I have not. Oh, uh, if you go on Twitter and you type in at uh, SFF Audio and you look at Good evening, Good morning, Good afternoon, I, I tweet these things. Um, 
I found the story of Judith. It was weeks ago before I even started this book. Um, and there's some beautiful illustrations. <laughs> I say beautiful. What I mean is horrible. Oh, there, yeah, there, yeah. Oh, okay. I just saw, yeah. Good evening. And you get, yeah, you got the Judith beheading Holofernes right yes. there. Yes. Yes. Uh, because, because I mean, I mean, the, the parallel is, I mean, losing telepathic powers could be considered a beheading. And he yes. does finally lose his powers when he, uh, when he deals with the sister. Judith is a widow, just like, just like, just like in the Bible, there's all sorts of fun little parallels, and I have to think that Silverberg picked you this name on purpose. Well, it's a nice Jewish girl's name, right? So no, but but, but, but yeah, I had to think he knew exactly what he was doing. I uh, when I first heard it, I didn't realize it was Selig. I thought it was Zelig. And you remember th- that's there's a, a different movie. thing. That's yeah, there's a, a movie different. called Zelig, right? Which is um. Which is- yeah, yeah, Another New you, York yeah. Jew movie, um, uh, but, uh, 1983 yeah, who, though, mockumentary starring Woody yeah. Allen and Mia Farrow. A guy who can be anybody, really. Uh, not, well, yeah, he's everywhere in history. He's the forgotten man, right? Yeah, I mean, he's Forrest Gump before there was Forrest Gump. There was Zelig. Yeah, it says uh, uh, Zelig was first observed at a party by F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> right, so he's everywhere. He's in every. Every newsreel footage, and this is a documentary about him showing up in every newsreel footage and how he's the secret history of reality. Um, what's funny is that Selig makes such a little impact uh, on the New York of 1972 that, you know, his death would mean absolutely nothing to almost anybody, right? And that's a really, it's a, a very interesting way to go with a science fiction novel is to have this massive superpower and have it be incredibly underwhelming. It, 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 it's, it's kind of, it's kind of working out all the implications of the, of the new wave. I mean, it is a take that at things, things like, uh, like, Be- I mean, I mean, consider Bester as, as a counter example yes, yes. yeah, of mental, mental superpowers changing the world. Here we have a guy with mental superpowers and he, doesn't do diddly shit with them. Yeah, no, he he uses them for the most pathetic thing. And mundane right? re- I, I, I mean, I, mean I, I, I could do the job that Selig does as a as a ghostwriter for student essays. I could do that without having actual telepathy, right? So, how is it that that that's what he thinks he's using it for, right? It, I I don't even think it matters there because. When he tries to to get into the jive speak uh, Lamumba voice, it doesn't work. Yeah, I, I I found that fascinating. He writes that essay a couple of times and is yeah. dissatisfied with it again and again and again. That goes back to the whole idea of this metaphor being being a being one of like a writer's block and inability to write. I mean, that whole sequence where he's trying to do the Eskel's essay and keep, keeps failing at it. it feels like like Silverberg exploring the idea of what it means not to be able to write well anymore and, I, and being frustrated by that. Yeah, and so like, you know, I used to write a, a lot of reviews for my website, right? Um, like a lot. I used to, and not just reviews, but I, I'd write like, I, I made it sort of a goal in a post at least one thing every day, right? And did that for years and years and years and years and years. 
um, I stopped doing it. And mostly I stopped doing it because I, I noticed that I sort of was repeating. I didn't want to repeat myself. And the metaphors can sort of become... The affectations, the, the turns of phrase. I, I find this in myself as well that I'll, I will, uh, there, there are, there are some, there are some things I will reach for in, in, in descri- describing how a novel works, especially yes. if it's a novel that feels a lot like a previous novel. I will go with, yeah. And if things. you're, so, if you're not, uh, if it's, if it's just a book, right. And it's not an amazing book, the temptation is to shit on it. Um, but if it's not, if, if it's not the book that you're looking for and it's still a good book, then why are you shitting on it, right? Um, so you can sort of put almost too much of your own baggage into it, and I found myself. Oh, 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 def- oh I mean, it's inevitable that you're going to put baggage of your own into any review. The matter is trying to reduce that to the bare minimum. You no, can't yeah, make it you zero. Don't put too much is what I'm saying. And, and the yeah. thing is, is, you know, that doesn't stop the demand for reviews. <laughs> so you have to sort of make a conscious choice to not to not do it. Um, but I still find myself enamored with writing. I just don't find myself enamored with doing that much of it because it's almost like a superpower that you can you can waste right by using uh, a metaphor too much. Yeah, yeah, bur- bur- burning yourself out. I mean, there are plenty of high-powered reviewers in this community who have walked away and just like they've stopped reviewing and it's kind of, mm-hmm. kind of sad, but they, they basically, they basically became done. I mean, I know one of them, I'm not going to name him on air who still gets tons of books because like reviewers, a book company is still hoping he'll go back to reviewing because he was a really good reviewer, but he gets, he got sick of the treadmill. He well, said everything he SF wanted to Signal say. Doesn't, doesn't blog anymore, right? There's still, well, I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking of John. I, I, I mean, I mean, he, he chiseled his reviews for Kirkus. So it's not like he stopped completely, but yeah. he stopped hosting a whole big website. But I was thinking of one other, one other review. And then I can now think of a couple that's just like, yeah, I've had enough of this. I mean, one, one of them is basically, basically, gone to be, be a farmer so yeah seems reasonable <laughs> uh, it, 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 i mean i am I'm, I'm subscribed to his newsletters it's like he's talking about his life and so i was like you're living a happy life dude i'm glad for you it's just it's sad that you're not writing reviews anymore but i see you've, you've gone to a different and happier place and he seems to be living his best life as a result mm. by basically gets books oh yeah no that that, that, that doesn't seem to stop <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, it I might may not slow be, down, but it doesn't stop. I may, I may not be the best reviewer on the planet, but you know, I, I put out consistently still, and I guess there is. I, I haven't finished saying everything I want to say when I actually get a book that's interesting enough to talk about, be it on on a podcast or something else. I, it's it's books that show me something new or underappreciated that I can I can feel more eloquent about than. You know, same old, same old. So uh, we we talked a bit about uh, this, and I guess we talked about it a bit earlier as well in the podcast. But uh, thinking about the book of skulls, is still a good book. It's still a good book, and it's still uh, worth reading, even though that was 1976, right? That's a long time ago, 42 years ago or whatever. Um, this book also still a good book, and although it's, it feels less, uh, slightly less. 
um, I don't know, stuck in its time. I mean, this one has references to posters from the 60s and that sort of thing. And I guess the the black dialogue is slightly different yeah. now. In, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, there are aspects of both book that definitely date it as to, yeah, this takes place when it's it a historical piece, right? Right. Um, but I think the the um, the power of the book is still with it, right? I mean, I, I mean, I mean, I mean that this one hit me a lot harder than Book of Skulls, probably because Book of Skulls is about a group of young kids grappling with Im- it's better. It's better because of the narrator, I think, in in this just yeah. one narrator rather than that one. But and I'm they're both very to this well nar- put together. I'm, I'm closer to this narrator in age and you know life experience. Although no, I've not had his life experience, but you know this fact of you know having lived through things and done things and looking forward and behind, rather than just being at the front of life like kids. I mean, I pro- probably. Probably I would really like Book of Skulls even more had I read it way back when. Mm. I mean, I, I appreciate dying inside. At least I got more out of it now when I did read it back in what, 1990, I think. So it's it's definitely a book for uh, it's it's definitely a book for middle aged science fiction readers. And rather than I wouldn't give this to a 20 year old, but to a 40 year old, mm. yes, mm. because because that, because it will hit that all much harder. 41 yeah, year old, yeah. Yeah, that that they'll they'll feel it a lot more yeah. and and resonate it with it. So there are definitely, I mean, I I'm not so prescriptive to say, oh, you should not read this book until a certain point. Although there are books that you should not hand a new science fiction reader right off the bat. But I think this is a book hey, that kids, I would, you're gonna love science fiction. Read Dying Inside. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> definitely. Uh, yeah, this is a book I say it's no. It's the golden age, thirteen. Here, read this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm serious. I mean, the the golden age of science fiction is thirteen. I can't imagine thirteen year olds really going for this book. I mean, uh, I, I don't know. know. Uh, I'm not a hundred percent sure about that because had I read it when I was young, I probably would have been like, oh, this is a cool superpower. I know, you know, when you're young, you read books differently than when you're old, right? You, you, so you do. You but... sort of ignore. The, it's like. Uh, you ignore the things you don't that don't interest you. I, I didn't see the depth of of the character and and his plight back when I was mm. twenty. Yeah, I couldn't feel it. Right? This. I couldn't feel it. Now I yeah. feel it really hard. It hits. So yeah, yeah this is not. I, I would not hand this to a teenager or a twenty year old. I I would hand it to a forty year old. Like okay, here read the. You 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 want to see the power of science fiction, even though they're problematic and you're going to cringe at some points. Here, read this and then <laughs> come back get back to me. Because because yeah, because the the, the whole Labumba thing and not to mention his outright sexism and whatnot are very very cringeworthy. I but. don't know. I I was thinking that that's just a pathetic character, right? That like. When, once you're inside somebody's head, and and you're really inside David Selig's head in this book, I mean that's really all there is, right? Once you're inside somebody's head, you pretty much have to forgive them for everything. The only thing I don't forgive Silverberg for in this book is sort of the the um, forced plot point of the uh, the crisis with Lumumba. That's the only thing that sort of feels like ham-fistedly plot. Yeah. Yeah, he yeah he need he quote needed that to uh, be able to yeah uh, to get to the denouement of him being kicked off of campus. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. That that's what that's that's, that's crisis all in the crisis crisis part of the crisis, right? Right. And so that that was the only thing that didn't really work for me. Uh, it and it wasn't even like um, because honestly, I have no idea how black people in uh, 1972 talked, except by what I've read in this book and in movies, because I was not alive then. And I remember watching movies where, you know, they make, there's a really, really funny sequence that uh, it was one of my favorite movies in Airplane, you know, mm-hmm. this movie. Oh, yes. I speak jive. <laughs> That's right. And uh, recently I rewatched it and they had subtitles, which was great because, like, actually what they said made sense. Like, it wasn't just a bunch of sounds. It was people communicating, not just words, but sentences that told a little story but when i read it the first oh i guess i was watching it when i was a kid if the subtitles were there i didn't see them and no i think it wasn't subtitles it was just uh you know uh closed captioning or whatever so and they they had done it and the sentences make sense so i don't know if jive was (laughs) jive's not a real language but jive talking is certainly a, a phenomenon, and I, I mean, there, there are dialects, and there are, and and there are words for individual communities. I am reminded very weird. I am reminded very weirdly. This is, I don't think SF Audio has ever uh, has ever had a reference to the show Different Strokes, but here we go. <laughs> you remember Different Strokes? What you talking about, Willis? Exactly. There was there was an episode where they test uh, where they test the kid's IQ, and he comes up low, and the uh. And and the father figure is really put out by this because he he knows he 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 knows that uh he's Gary Coleman's character is not stupid. So then they give the other guy an IQ test based on black culture, and they get throw mm. all these references and illusions at him. He doesn't get it, and then the father says, "Well, it looks like you're going to need some education." It's like, <laughs> and that that was my first, weirdly enough, in a, a TV show, my first real idea that there'd be cultures that have completely different uh languages and vocabularies like that right here in america that yeah the fact the fact that you're tuned into that as opposed to the mainstream cultures doesn't mean you're stupid that means you're just you just know about different things is by the way it's not different strokes it's different different strokes (laughs) there's an apostrophe or something in there different different strokes for different folks who rule the world yes it does sorry (laughs) <laughs> oh boy <laughs> well i guess we're finished this book huh i th- i think i th- i i think we're finished dying inside yes and it was well worth it i i'm sad that scott and uh, wayne couldn't join us but yeah, it would be nice to have their perspectives on it but yeah i'm pretty well satisfied with uh our discussion so thank it's you enjoyable thank you This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.